All right. So, so, um, how can things get any worse? How can things possibly get any worse? Have you ever asked that question? Usually people don't ask it more than a few times because they learn the answer is, of course things can get worse. You know, all you've got to do is think and, and you can immediately begin conjuring up ways that things can get worse and sometimes they can get a whole lot worse. But this is the question that Jesus asks his disciples to consider this week. Um, I was, uh, I was, uh, at the, um, my little earthquake story was that um, I was at the uh, intersection of the, what would you call it, the, uh, the off-ramp off of Minnesota at Raspberry, the northbound off, off-ramp. So picture that over by Change Point, right? And I have just come down that ramp, and um, I'm at the stoplight, and my car starts to shake, and I think, oh my goodness, I've got, a, I've got an engine malfunction or something like that. So I'm thinking something's wrong with my car, and then it gets shaking worse, and I think, boy, this is a really bad malfunction. And... <laughs> And then I look up and I notice that the uh, traffic signal is also shaking. And, and I say, oh, okay, it's an earthquake. Okay, now I've got a category to put this in. And I actually, I actually felt relaxed. Because, okay, good. I don't have to fix my car or something. Right? So, so, you know, the earthquake kind of stops. The, the traffic lights changes. And so I turn left onto Raspberry. And now I'm headed home. And when I get to the, uh, when I, when I, I have barely gotten onto the street, when I'm faced with a problem, right? Because I see right in front of me is this great big freeway overpass. And, you know, what I think of is the 1989 uh, uh, World Series uh, uh, earthquake, the Loma Prieta earthquake, where the highways collapsed on each other. And I'm thinking, do I really want to drive under that? Or is there some other way, now that I'm here, to turn around and go home the long way? And I'm kind of running through this, and I finally say, all right, you know, how can things get any worse, right? Well, they... the the overpass could fall down on me, but I but I steeled myself and I drove through it very quickly and got to the other side and barely skidded into the intersection on the far side. So, um, so it was a, it was a good day and I got home safely. As I was driving all through the um, through the neighborhood, I see all the lights are out. Um, you know the the traffic signals are blinking. Some of them are out, um, and so I'm thinking, well, I guess things could get worse. And then I start thinking, how much worse could things get? And and you know, uh, so I'm thinking, well. Maybe we won't have power for days and we'll be, you know, fighting, you know, at the grocery stores because there's no power in our homes or whatever. So I start thinking, I start conjuring up all the usual earthquake scenarios. I um, hear when I get home that there's a, a tsunami warning and I think, well, what if it wipes out the port? And, you know, we live here at the far end of a big logistical chain and, and so 90% of what we consume in Alaska comes through the port of El- And I'm thinking, you know, this could be terrible. This could be the end of the world, right? And so I hope I'm not, uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> Making anyone anxious, but but <laughs> but I once had a job that where they called me Sunshine, so maybe that's just that's just my uh, my uh, particular outlook on life. But but this question, how can things get any worse? It's not hard uh, in most scenarios to think of something that is a lot worse. Now we are in a uh, series uh, called the Coming Light. Uh, we're looking at the the fact that Easter or that Easter. Wow. Um, that Christmas is not just um, a, a, a holiday celebration in its own right. It is also a reminder of something that is coming. Jesus came once at Christmas, but he promised us he would come again. At the end of this age, Jesus would come again in glory. So we look forward to that. And in our reading today, Jesus asks the disciples to consider how could things get any worse. So we're going to hear from kind of the tail end of this discussion he has with his disciples. But I want to kind of uh, give you the context that that, that that discussion took place in. 
Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and they've, they've come from out of town. They're in Jerusalem, and in, in a few days, Jesus will be arrested and crucified. But that hasn't happened yet. The disciples are still thinking, this is great. You know, this is the big city, and, you know, pretty soon we're going to be, you know, we're, we're in with the, the, the big shot here. We're going to be in the... In the um, the the new uh, party that takes over government of this place. So that's the kind of mood that the disciples are in. And we read this uh, at the beginning of the chapter. It says, Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. You know, you've heard about, you know, the, the visitor to the White House who starts measuring for drapes. You know, it's like, that's kind of the, the mindset that they're in. They're thinking, you know, someday, you know, this will all be mine. And they're saying, look at this, you know, the beautiful stones and everything. And, and from what we know, it really was beautiful. Uh, here's a model you can see in Israel. It's called the Holy Land Museum. And it's this great big model they built to, to give you an idea of what uh, what Jerusalem would have looked like at the time of Christ. And what you can mainly see in that picture is there's a wall in front of you. That wall was about 100 to 160 feet high, depending on where you were standing. So it was this huge elevated thing, because what Herod had done uh, over the past 60 or 70 years is he had built all of Jerusalem up. It's built on two mountains, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. And he just decided they weren't big enough for his building projects. So he built these big retaining walls and then filled it all in. So he had a big flat surface to work in, and that's where the temple complex was built. So these stones were truly magnificent. Um, here's another image. This was this was painted by an artist in the um, uh, 1800s, James Tissot, and um, he was also imagining it because it's not there anymore. But there are pieces of it that's still there. Here's one that has its own Wikipedia page. It's called the Western Stone, and if you go to uh, Jerusalem, you can maybe get a tour. I don't know if, if it's open to the public or not, but it's called the Western Stone. It is what's called an ashlar stone. These big these big stones you build these retaining walls out of are called ashlar stones. And this one right here is one of the wonders of the world. It's one of the biggest stones ever used in construction. It's 570 tons. It's 45 feet long, 10 feet high, 15 feet deep. It's a huge stone. They're, they're guessing about the depth. They've done some studies, but you can't just pull it out and measure, right? So, so they've got some idea of how big it is. And just to give you a sense of how much volume that is, how big of a stone that is, picture um, uh, eight Chevy Suburbans. Okay, so two by two by two. Okay, that's the size stone that we're talking about here. It's a gigantic, it's a monumental stone, and it's just one of one of the stones. Unfortunately, there aren't many of them left. Uh, most of them were taken away or broken down. So this is the Western Stone. It's a huge, huge thing that's still in Israel. But uh, but what we know is that Jesus said in response to this, the disciples saying, "What a great place!" You know, I can't wait to run the place. Jesus says. The time is coming when these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So you can see there aren't a lot of these stones that they can look at because what happened in 70 AD is the Romans showed up and the Romans took down the whole temple. They just, they, they literally, they raised it to the ground. So literally not one stone was left on top of another. And the disciples are going, this conversation has taken a strange turn. When will that happen? You know, you're talking about something far off in the future, right? That's not something to worry about. I mean, eventually, yes, things break down, but but that's not anything we have to worry about, right, Jesus? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And Jesus says, well, don't worry. It'll be after they persecute you. (laughs) 
and probably not the best way to, uh, to, to calm them down. He says, before all this occurs, there'll be a time of great persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You'll stand trial before kings and governors because you're my followers. And so they're thinking, this conversation is really not going the direction I wanted. And then he says, oh, and to answer your question, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out, and those out in the country should not return to the city because Jerusalem would be, in 67 AD, Jerusalem would be surrounded by this army, and they stayed there until the city finally broke down. Uh, they, they besieged it. There was no food or water going into the city, and so there was starvation and death in the city, and eventually the city's defenses crumbled, and they were able to come in and take it and destroy everything. So Jesus says, that will happen, but first, don't worry, because they're going to persecute you first. And then he goes on. He's kind of warming up to his theme, and he says, um, and then nation will go to war against nation. When he says nation, he means ethnic groups, so there'll be a tribal conflict. There'll be ethnic conflict within within national country, you know, within um nation states. But then he says, oh, and the nation states will also fight the kingdom against kingdom. He says, there will be great earthquakes and um, there will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands and there will be many terrifying things. It's like, you know, I don't even know what the terrifying things are, but what you've told me about is is plenty to work with, Jesus. And he says, and he says, oh, and also some things up in the sky that are even worse than that. So, so great miraculous signs from heaven. And so we can picture the disciples at this point kind of going, ah, okay, uh, what am I supposed to do with all that, Jesus? So Jesus goes on to explain it, and this is where we picked up our reading. So so that's the backstory to our reading today. Jesus has just kind of dumped this all on them, and they're still processing this. And Jesus says, there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Now, what does he mean by that? It could mean something like this. You remember the, the fires in Kenai a couple of years ago? We had red skies and a red sun for about a week. Um, and we can we can imagine if there's wars and ethnic conflict, and all that stuff. We might imagine there might be fires and so forth. Maybe he's talking about something more prosaic. I was, you know, kind of because I am that sunny, cheerful personality at heart. Um, I was thinking, well, there could be another Carrington event, you know, that wipes out all the electronics on Earth. So it could be something like that. We see, you know, beautiful aurora um, all night, every night. And in the meantime, everything that's electronic quits working. So I don't know exactly what Jesus is getting at. Someplace between those two, probably. So Jesus says there will be these strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. So he's, he's painting this picture of, of all this terrible, terrible situation. He says, people will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then he gives them kind of the, the, the key to unravel what it is he's been talking about. He says, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and with great glory. We heard about this last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can listen online. But, but this is the, the day of the Lord. He's been talking about the day of the Lord when the Son of Man returns in glory to sort things out. So what is Jesus talking about the day of the Lord? And the disciples, okay, all right. I didn't realize we were going to go there today, Jesus, but okay, so we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, I guess. And the reason that they didn't want to go there is because people don't want to talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is terrible. We heard an example from the prophet Joel. The the prophet Joel talked about it. Um, Here's the passage from Isaiah. Isaiah says, scream in terror for the day of the Lord has arrived. Time for the Almighty to destroy. Joel said, the day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who could possibly survive? But my favorite, my favorite of all, 
is from Amos. Amos and I really have kind of the same outlook on life, I think. So, um, so he says this, what sorrow awaits from you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you're wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. <laughs> Escaping from the bear, he leans his house, his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. So Amos has this really cheerful outlook and he says, he says, he concludes by saying, yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. If the question is, how could it possibly get any worse? The answer is, it could be the day of the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples to think. Whatever their particular circumstances, how can anything be worse than the destruction of Jerusalem? How can anything worse than me being persecuted, right? Frankly, that's, that's plenty of worse for me. And then you're saying on top of that, Jerusalem could be, per, could be destroyed. And then even worse than that, there could be ethnic strife. There could be national conflict. How could things possibly get worse? And Jesus says, oh, you know how they could get worse. And they go, oh, that's right. It could be the day of the Lord. And so that's where Jesus has brought us to. In just a few short verses, we had the, the, the beginning part of the chapter to kind of orient us. But then Jesus very quickly says, no, think of, think of the worst thing you can possibly imagine. The worst thing all through the Hebrew scriptures, one prophet after another says, you better watch out because the day of the Lord is coming. And the disciples say, well, that's true. Okay, I'm not looking forward to that. And then Jesus does the most amazing thing of all. Jesus completely subverts all their expectations, everything they had been taught through all the prophets to understand about the day of the Lord. Because Jesus says, the disciples say, I'm not looking forward to that. And Jesus says, you should. He says, when all these things begin to happen, Stand and look up. When your temptation is to hunker down and hope it all blows over, he says, stand up. Stand up and look up because your salvation has come near. Your salvation is near. He says, despite what you think, the day of the Lord is about mercy. He says, you don't have to fear the day of the Lord. And he goes on, he says a little bit more. He says, in the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, I actually looked into this. I read some commentaries to see if anybody could give me some help understanding this. It's truly ambiguous. Some people say that this phrase here is talking about that day, the the the, the final day, the, the day of the Lord. Um, others say he's talking about all those intervening things. So when they're talking about the the persecution, the destruction of Jerusalem, and all, all the warfare and so forth, that he's saying that when those things happen, you can be sure the kingdom of God is near. And if 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 it's that latter case, I think what he's getting at is this idea. He began his ministry by saying the kingdom of God has come near. That we don't have to wait till the end times to have the kingdom of God. We can become citizens of the kingdom of God already because of what Jesus has done. So either way you want to look at that, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is near, that it's an available thing for us, whether it's right now or whether it's later on. So, but what about the wrath? All those, all the wrath that the, the prophets talked about. What, what do we do with that? I mean, you know, Joel and Amos with his bear and his snake and stuff like that. How do we make sense of that? The answer is that God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This is what we read in 2 Corinthians. Paul says that's how we explain the cross. What happened at the cross was all the sin of the world was born by Jesus on the cross. Jesus had all the sin of the world when he hung on the cross, and God poured out all of his wrath on the sin of the world. So it was a terrible day. It was a day of deep darkness and gloom. It was everything we could hope the day of the the Lord would be to eliminate sin. But we missed it because it has already happened to Jesus. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath and a day of mercy. It is a day of mercy for us because it was a day of wrath for Jesus. So what should we do when we see these strange signs and, and are tempted to despair? Jesus says, don't despair. He says, don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Why would we do that? Well, duh, of course we would do that. Paul talks about it in the book of, uh, the first, first letter to the Corinthians. He says, he says, if there's no resurrection, if there's no hope for the future, then what should you do? The, the perfectly ordinary, perfectly reasonable thing to do is to feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul knows that. He says, if there's no resurrection, if there's no hope, then you might as well party on because that's all you've got. And Jesus says, but that's not the situation. I would understand it if you did, but don't. When I read this text, I thought of, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Downfall. Um, it's a, a horrible movie, and it's in subtitled German. So, um, so, And it's about a horrible person. It's about Hitler, the last days of the Third Reich, and, and how basically Berlin is disintegrating. And so there's some people who are kind of fighting this battle against the Russian army as it, as it descends on Berlin. Others are basically saying, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so there's these scenes of these wild parties where people are carrying on and going crazy. Jesus says, don't do that. But I think uh, I almost immediately thought of another another uh, scene, too. Um, if you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, there's this scene after the dinosaurs have escaped and there's been carnage and horror and terror all over the place. Uh, the developer of the park, John Hammond, he, he was the person who designed this park and, and had this idea of people enjoying a fun experience with the dinosaurs, and he realizes his hopes are in tatters. And so he goes to the cafeteria, and he notices that the electricity's gone off. He notices the, the ice cream is melting. And instead of doing something, he just decides, I'm going to eat the ice cream. He does this totally stupid thing that has no point because what else can you do? He is, he is in despair. And so he tries to, he tries to dull his fear, his, his worry about the problems that he is now confronting by doing something that he must know is, is pointless. The, the ice cream's gonna melt. There's too much for him to eat. But he tries anyway. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be dulled. With this kind of thing. Don't let your hearts be dulled with the worries of life or drunkenness and carousing. He says, don't do that. What should you do? You should pray. Now, what would you expect Jesus to say? Of course he's going to say you're going to pray. But, but think about it. What is praying? What is the difference between praying and worrying? Right? Worrying is saying, I've got to figure out a solution. Praying is saying, I don't have a solution. Maybe God does. To, to recognize your own limitations and say, you know, my, my, Dinosaur theme park is, is in ruins. What can I do? Well, I can pray, right? I cannot solve this problem. You know, Hollywood has designed it so it's unsolvable. But what I can do is I can pray. And that's true for us. Whatever our circumstances are right now, whatever our circumstances will be at the day of the Lord when it comes, 
we can pray because we know that there will be circumstances that we cannot we cannot solve that our circumstances will be beyond us and so jesus says at that point there's going to be a temptation you know you know what this is right it's like well he's just going to tell me i made my bed and now i've got to lie in it right you know you know now you're getting you know what goes around comes around you know ha 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 and jesus says no he won't do that He's not going to rub your nose in it. He's not going to say, you know, you made your bed and now you've got to lie in it. He's going to say, okay, you do what you can do, I'll do what I can do. Jesus says, keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors. Because the goal, the goal is always that we can stand before the coming of the Son of Man. So, lastly, we stand and we look up. We keep alert. We pray. And I think in particular, there's something we can do. We can pray in community. Because, you know, if you're up in the mountain and it's beautiful and you're avoiding the tsunamis, I heard there are people who do it, who did that. Um, if you're up in the mountain and you, you see the beautiful wonder of nature and you are moved to a prayerful experience, that's great. But it's, it's intrinsically isolated. You're just doing that by yourself. But Jesus taught us that one of the ways we could remember, one of the ways that we could have confidence in the day of the Lord is by remembering that all the wrath of God has already been poured out in the cross. A few a few hours before he was arrested, Jesus took some bread and some wine and he said, whenever you eat this bread, I want you to remember that I have given my body for you. And whenever you drink this wine, I want you to remember that I have shed my blood for you. The wrath of God has been poured out on the sin that I have become in your place. He says, I did that for you. So you do that in community. It's where we get the word communion. It's because we come together to share a meal. And we do it to remember that we don't have to fear the wrath of God because the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that the wrath of God, that your wrath has been poured out not on us but on Jesus. Um, we give you thanks, Lord, that, that in the midst of turmoil and earthquakes and, and uh, national strife and, and all the other things that Jesus reminded us are still a reality here on earth, that in the midst of these things, Lord, we can stand and look up because the kingdom of God is near. Lord, help us to remain diligent. Help us not to be tempted to self-medicate and, and solve our problems with ice cream or with wild partying. Lord, help us to stand to look alert, and to pray. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.